Welcome back to the Project E podcast, a weekly show where I interview emerging and established entrepreneurs and creators in the UAE and in the Middle East. And my guest today is Sean Rowlands, founder of Shop Retold, the top pre-owned fashion boutique based here in Dubai. Sean shares with us the story of what made her leave a successful corporate career in the interior design world to start Retold and explains how fast fashion is affecting our environment and what we could do as individuals to lower the overall carbon footprint when it comes to wardrobe management. Sean Rowlands, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Please tell us something about you that we don't know. Oh, wow. Okay, well, I trained as an interior architect. I actually started off training as an architect and figured it was too much like hard work. So I switched to interior architecture instead. I grew up here, so I've been in Dubai for 30 years now. Not that you'd be able to tell by my entire lack of tan. <laughs> so you've you've seen it all. You've I've seen, seen all. JLT, Marina, I, all I of Emirates. Back when it was a desert way before any of that arrived. Yeah. Where were you in Jumeirah, let me guess? Uh, we were in Jumeirah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I was at uh, Jess Primary School for the first couple of years near Safa Park. And then I went to Dubai College, which is on the kind of the um, corner of Hester Street and Beach Road. And obviously, Dubai College was the only thing that was there. We actually used to run our cross country. We'd hop over the wall at the back and run our five to six kilometer cross country circuit. Now where Media City and Knowledge Village all is. But that was all just desert. It was just scrubbed Yeah, it was nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow! So you've seen it, like you've seen it transform. Basically. I've seen I've seen a couple yeah. of different versions of the city. Yeah. So back when it was a little tumbleweed town, and then when I was coming back, where I was at university in UK, and then when I was hopping back over every sort of three four months, because why would I want to stay in UK? <laughs> and you know the city was really changing then. And then when I moved that was back, early two thousands, is it? Yeah, yeah, about then. And then when I moved back fifteen years ago, was was then a, a different version of the city as well. So I've seen. I've seen all the different iterations of it. And so when you made that switch to that career, a different you went into a different career at the uh, time? Yeah, no, so I finished my, I graduated um, from my interior architecture and, and moved back here and started work straight away doing interior design. So I used to design five-star hotels, um, bars, restaurants, spas, that sort of thing, and, and worked for about 13, 14 years in the industry doing that, 13 years And ago. that was a booming sector too. Oh, huge, yeah, yeah. There was so much going on. So I worked on a couple of um, large five-star hotels, done the, the whole thing um, here in the UAE. I've done a couple in Asia. A lot of the work that we were doing at the time was in China. Um, wow. We had a couple of clients like the Shangri-La Group and um, Hilton and things like that that were all based in China. And when did you move out of that field? Well, it was sort of a bit of a, there was an overlap for sure. I actually started off doing the concept originally in 2011. And it sort of came about from the fact that I had a very well-paid career and I used to spend all of my hard-earned salary on clothes, basically. So I had a bit of a shopping problem. Mm -hmm. And I had a chat with my sisters, you know, one day and I was like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm broke. I don't know how I'm going to pay rent and decided I needed to rent out the spare room in my apartment. But in order to do so, I needed to clear out the wardrobe so at least someone else could live in there. And that's really when I kind of discovered the extent of my addiction and my, the problem that I had. You know, I had five packing boxes full of clothes and 
about 75% of them I'd never worn, so they still had their original tags. So you um, bought them, never, never worn wore them? Never them, sat in the wardrobe, yeah. So when you bought them, like yep. walk me through the, the buying decision-making process. There, there wasn't a was lot of, the, the whole point was there wasn't a lot sale? of thought that went into it. Yeah, some of it was on sale. Okay. A, a lot of it was sort of high street, mid to high mm. end high street. You know, so I'd sort of say uh, like Ted Baker, Reese, um, BCBG, those sort of brands. There wasn't a huge thought that went into it. Mm. It was more, I like that. It's aesthetically pleasing. It fits. Okay, yeah, maybe some of the time it was on sale. Even I want to have it. I want to have it. Because I was buying so much, I was just never having the opportunity to wear it all. And in subsequent years, you you kind of delve into the, the psychology behind it. And there was definitely an addiction there, an addiction to the desire to to have it and and the the pheromones that go with buying it and and the kind of you know the happy hormone that that comes up and like oh it's exciting got this piece um, no one else has it well mm. actually a lot of people do because it's it's cookie cutter here you know you go into the malls and, and you end up wearing the same clothes that, that other people are wearing because that's all that's on offer so that's you know one of the really interesting things that that came about from from what i do so it, the sort of desire to kind of have these these new pieces, it wears off quite quickly. And there's sort of there's scientific um, studies that have gone into proven that that it's now about 24 to 48 hours that that the excitement of those new pieces wear off. Yeah, dopamine. Yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. So that's part of the cycle of consumerism and and um, fast fashion. So it really sort of started back then, and I had these five packing boxes of clothes and. No idea what to do with it. You know, we're talking 2011, so um, nine years ago. My options really were to take it down to the flea markets and and sort of sell it all for five dirhams at best. But a lot of the clothes I'd spent five, six, seven hundred dirhams on them and kind of that wasn't really the return I was looking for for those new pieces. The other option was Dubizzle, which is a great platform for um, for sort of buying and selling mm-hmm. secondhand mm-hmm. Um, items across the board. Yep. But but when I looked at the clothing section, it, it wasn't really... Popular. Yeah, it wasn't really popular. It didn't have the right demographic for the kind of clothes I was selling. It just didn't seem like the right avenue. So I thought, well, why don't I do it myself? Yeah, because um, I don't think... In terms of a mindset here in the UAE or in, in the region that it's acceptable or in the norm that we... It's certainly not in the norm yeah, because we're we, not given the option to. But you've got to remember that, yeah, whilst there are all these cultural differences and different cultural mindsets, I come from a culture where it's okay. I have three sisters, so there's four of us girls. We always have worn each other's clothes. So for me, there was never a barrier to buy someone's secondhand clothes, you know, as long as it's cleaned. I, you know, wash it all when I get it home. Whenever I was in UK or when I've traveled to the States or Europe or Australia, I quite happily go into secondhand shops and whether they're consignment or whether they're charity shops, thrift shops, you know, as long as you're kind of, you're cleaning it when you get home, you're, you're taking on that responsibility. For me, there's no cultural issue to it. And I know a lot of my network it was a similar mindset. So I didn't see that as a barrier to entry. So we sort of started quite small. We were just doing, uh, the first one was actually a, a garden party at my sister's house. We'd invited 
maybe 25, 30 of our, our friends down. And not just my clothes. There was, you know, two of my sisters who lived here at the time. They put some stuff in. I had some friends who also shopaholics. They chucked some stuff in. But our network ended up inviting other people outside our network. And, and quite quickly, uh, within about two, three days of sending the invite out for this little garden party, we had about 150 people going, oh, my God, I want to come. This is amazing. This is exactly what Dubai needs. And that's really when the kind of the light bulb moment hit. And I was like, this is bigger than just a couple of little garden parties. So that was really the really okay. the start of it. So that would be so people in these garden parties. Yep. You would invite people to bring in their yeah beforehand clothes. So so we really hand. only did, yeah secondhand or pre-owned we call or it pre-owned. yeah pre-owned. So we really only did one garden party. After that we we hosted ladies nights. So okay. we actually took the concept and and did a pop up in a bar or a restaurant on a ladies' night. So mm-hmm. they already had a bit of footfall. We invited our own ladies down. It's very um, clever. Actually. And it was really interesting. And it, this was back, you know, when sort of on the first dip of Dubai Ladies' Nights. <laughs> so they've been around for a while, but but people were still like, right, well, you know, we, we need to get more footfall in. How else can we do that? Let's have some other interesting things going on. And that was a really great offering from us is we would come in and, and we would offer a shop for the evening where people could come down. Nice. They could shop for mm-hmm. a fraction of mm-hmm. the price they would in the malls, enjoy the complimentary offerings from the bar or the restaurant, and, in, you know, have a social evening shopping. And something that was slightly different than going down to the malls. So it was a really, really quickly that it gained momentum. And we were regularly seeing about 100 women come down to our our sort of our shopping events, which we were hosting sort of once a month, let's say. That's awesome. And, yeah. and that's what... That's what proved the concept for That's you, what, that was the viability the of yeah, the Yeah, absolutely. And, and obviously, myself and my sisters, we were still working. Um, you know, I still, still had my... Okay. I was still working at this point. Oh, yeah. you didn't leave your job? No, yeah. no, no, no. Oh, so I was okay. still a design director. So I was running a studio. We had um, 16, 18 staff members. So I was managing the team, plus running the, the th- sort of three large-scale projects I had at the time when I started this. So I had a fairly demanding job. And, you know, I'm a glutton for punishment. So I was like, I'll just take on this concept as well and do this. So how how did you plan it, though? Because I think this is super relevant. And a lot of the listeners listening to it right now could also perhaps learn something uh, from this. Because I think, or some people might think that in order to start something, they need to do it full time at the start and or go big and start big or it needs to be perfect and it needs to be shop or store a concept an app etc this grand big vision Thing. right off the yeah. but which is kind of what places a limitation on a limitation to start. Absolutely. It prevents you from starting it's a, something. It's a barrier. It's a barrier for everyone. I mean, I'm a bit of a self-confessed perfectionist, so so I definitely suffer from that, and I, and I get that. At the time, it was a great, fun, social concept that really was based around the fact that I loved fashion, I loved shopping. You know, we had a huge network of friends between myself and my sisters and, and their network of all people who, who felt the same way. So it was a really kind of easy way to sort of test this, you know, we would sit together, my sister and I, we'd get together once a week and and choose a date. And then we started working with a couple of bars regularly, so or restaurants regularly. So we could literally go to them and say, how about this day? You know, let's do it on the 3rd of March. Does that work? Set up a Facebook event and, and go from there. So it was a really sort of organic, gentle way of starting within the constraints mm. of the time that we had. And you know what? Every day, the day before the event, 
I'd look back and be like, oh, we haven't done enough of this or we haven't got enough that, you know, I'd always look back and say there wasn't enough time, you know, we didn't allow ourselves enough time. But but we really had to get past that that barrier, which is, you know, making sure everything's big and perfect ahead of time. We didn't really have that option then. Yeah, um, if it's perfect, then you launch too late. Is, you launch is too the late. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. So so really, we were doing that for five, about five years alongside um, jobs. And one of my sisters had two kids and, you know, another sister, she had sort of a small jewelry design business as well as her um, career as well. So we were really kind of <laughs> piling it on quite thick. And But you were having fun along the we way. We were having because, fun along the way. Because, like yeah. you said, it was... It was an easy kind of setting to exactly. test and get started. And slowly, slowly grow. So yeah. we went from it being, you know, in a few storage boxes in my then bedroom, because I'd rented out the spare room in my apartment, you know, in a few storage boxes in, in my room. And then we got a bit bigger and then we took on a little warehouse space. And, and the company that we had there as a, a storage solution, they were fantastic. They really helped us us grow. That was the, the box self-storage. And, and Wadi is a fantastic uh, mentor as well, actually. Um, great businessman and and really open to kind of having these amazing conversations with people and and he was always really interested he's like right so how do you go next and maybe you do this and it was really fascinating kind of you know having that support from him as well so we had a little storage space they then had a really nice little office area that we do these kind of open warehouses so we'd then invite people down and then it became once a week and and then we really got to the point where I needed to turn things around. I needed to sort of make a change. And it really came down to my last design project that I was working on full time. When was that? Uh, this would have been, oh, I'm terrible with chronologic placing thing, 2016, 2017, let's say. Okay. Yeah, mid 2016, towards the end of 2017. And I was designing the new bar at the Burj Al Arab, so the only seven star hotel in the world. And I'm going to site yeah, every day. Yeah, I think I know it. Yeah. <laughs> you may have seen yeah. it. I was going to site every week and I was just surrounded by all of this opulence and all of this. Extra. Extra, extra. And and it was so misaligned with with actually where my journey had taken me, which was minimalism and reduction and really opening my eyes towards the consumerism that's out there. And yet my sort of day job, if you like, in inverted commas, was taking me to this place where I was just so far away from from what I I felt truly passionate about. And even um, though it was paying well. Oh, it was paying wonderfully. And and do you know what? I, I love the creative process. I am a designer. I'm a I'm a creative person. So the whole process was amazing. But the sort of these these two outputs were so vastly different from each other that I definitely had a, a crisis of of being at the time. I was like, but you know, I'm a designer. That's what I do. So I should be doing this. And then on the other side, I'm like but I just want to make the world a better place and, you know, stop polluting it and damaging it. And I can kind of see the huge effect that the fast fashion industry has on the world and above and beyond that, fast lifestyle industries, not just fashion, mm. but fast lifestyle industries. So I, I really just had to make a decision on on where I wanted to go. So um, I finished up that project with that company and, and we said our friendly goodbyes. And I was like, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to be in design anymore. I'm stepping away from it. At the same time, I did a trek to Everest Base Camp. I needed a bit of time off. Right. And most people go down to the beach, right? No, no, I go and do a 14-day trek. And... Went grand. Yeah, <laughs> go big or go home. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's where 
where you find stillness, right? Oh, and in so the mountains. much uh, silence and Get stillness clarity, and serenity. And it was incredible. It really was life-changing. Not only was it stunning, it was such a physical and mental challenge as well. I can't say I really trained enough for it. But even if I had... There is a little bit of training involved, right? Because yeah, look, I did I did a few hikes beforehand, but okay. I, I didn't. I was nowhere near fit mm-hmm. enough. Mm-hmm. I, I, I could have been fitter, let's put it that way, but I left everything to the last minute. But it was it was actually more the um, the mental challenge, which was the hard part of, of when the altitude sickness kicks in or whether the exhaustion kicks in. And you just have to keep telling yourself to keep going. It's just... Just one more step, just one more step, just one more step. And you're you're repeating that mantra to yourself for sort of two hours. It can get quite exhausting, but that's what you that's what you've got to push through, mm-hmm. not really the sort of the physical side, because your body can do it. It's mental. It's just the the mental barrier. So it was life changing that trip. It really was. And actually when I came back to Dubai after that trip, there was a, a couple of things that fell into place at at the same time, and it was very, very serendipitous. So I actually entered a business competition with my business plan. And I won. So I found that out uh, a week after I got back from base camp, um, which was awesome. At the same time, one of the guys that I'd been on the base camp trek with, he sort of loved the concept and and was like, I'd really love to get involved and and perhaps maybe put in some investment. So we started having that conversation all at the same time as um, this business competition came in, which was fantastic. So it was all based around this. This is clearly what I, I need to sort of focus on for the next few years of my life and really, really take it from these kind of these pop up, you know, part time um, concept and and really push through and and, and give Dubai and the UAE yep. the opportunity to to have access to pre-owned and sustainable fashion. Did you end up going into business? Yeah. Yeah. Really? Yeah. So he's one of my he's one of my shareholders. And you met him through. We met him on the track. Yeah. We, on the track. Yeah. We, we sort of, you know, spent 14 days just chatting about life and, and everything and. And over the course of of that time, we just got talking about the the business, the concept, and and he was just so like, you got clarity, you got a business partner, yep. and things just started to and things <laughs> things started to fall into place, which is when go we go to Everest, yeah, <laughs> go to Everest exactly, but take your reusable water bottle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's important. Yeah, huge. And so that's when we decided to open the shop. So we went from just being these pop-ups to full-time, you know, seven days a week, 12 hours a day boutique. Um, you quit your job Left the job uh, before base camp. Before, so I yes. left I left just before base camp, left my job before base camp, and then and obviously then, did base camp and, and came back. So it was all this real, like everything was sort of being wrapped up yeah. right at the right time. So, yeah, and, I came back. And, and then actually when I decided to open the boutique, that's actually when I decided mm. to rebrand as well. So the, the project was called something else before. What was it called? It was called My Ex Wardrobe. My ex wardrobe. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, Which was a great name and and it had, you know, it was real popular amongst our, um, you know, our community. But I just felt that it had served its purpose and served its time and it it was time to kind of open the next chapter of the story, hence Retold. Tell us about Retold. So now... The inspiration behind the name. Yeah. So it was obviously a couple of things. One, we were looking at really... What's the aspiration of what we're trying to do? We focus on pre-owned fashion. So we're all about giving clothes a second chance at happiness, which has been our tagline from day one. But alongside that, it's about retelling of the story. So a lot of these pieces, you know, okay, we have all the everyday pieces, but we get some amazing statement pieces that come in. We've had wedding dresses come in. We've had ball gowns. We've had engagement dresses. We've had tuxedos. We've had hats that, you know, mother of the bride wore to, you know, a daughter's wedding. You know, So we've got all of these pieces that, you know, vintage pieces. We've got, we've got a massive selection of vintage pieces. They all have a story. 
story and they all have a life before you find them. So it was really about how can we encapsulate that in the name without it being as obvious as my ex-wardrobe. And when we came up, it's actually a very good friend of mine who I was running another business because I'm a glutton for punishment uh, several years ago. She's she's an incredible wordy person, very like super smart. And we were sitting one day doing doing a brainstorm and, and coming up with all these words. And we're like, oh, okay, we like this, we like this. And no, no, no. And lo- there was lots of no's. And she said, retold. And I was like, huh. That ticks a few of my boxes. And then we sort of like, right, let's let's play on this a little bit further. And because I'm a visual person, I'm a designer, I designed the brand. So, you know, one of the first things I did is sort of popped it into, you know, what I wanted the branding to look like. And I was like, yeah, this works. This works. And then it's got that extra layer of it's the next chapter in our story as well as it being you know, the next chapter in in the story of these clothes. So it has that really nice kind of double meaning to it. It it does. Like, it it stands out for sure. It does, yeah. So it's a real aspirational brand, which is is great. And then obviously the way that we've designed the branding itself is very much a blank canvas so that we're Mm -hmm. actually showcasing the clothes that we have, you know, in stock. I want to come back to something that you mentioned just a while earlier yeah. about the fast fashion yes, industries. The dark side of fashion. Yeah. yeah. Well, like walk us through the dark side. What's going on with fast fashion and what are some of the actual damages that are oh, you know, caused huge. by fa- fast huge. fashion and how can we uh, contribute? And another not interesting. Contribute. <laughs> or, uh, You're not contribute, yeah. No, no, not cont- <laughs> contribute to ending to, it to or to minimizing it, yeah. it or yeah. curbing our f- carbon yeah. footprint. And then... I'm wondering if this is all fueled by how social media just mm-hmm. elevated this. Yeah, whole... I think it all goes hand in hand. For me, yeah. my my you journey. Can, you to can discovering... tackle that like however you, you however you yeah, want. Yeah, I mean, but you know, I, I have I have quite a dark view on society, so I won't get too far right. into that. But okay. you know, look, my journey started yeah really in 2011, uh, discovering you know kind of all of these um, huge impacts. I come from a family that has always been quite conscious of that. You know, my dad was always interested in renewable energy and, you know, would always put that onto to us kids and, you know, always kind of reducing, reusing, recycle. That that was part of what we did growing up. So that that's always been part of my mindset. But really the discovery of the fashion industry came when I'd, I'd started my ex-wardrobe. I was sort of, I was doing these monthly pop-ups and, and then I started getting more interested in in the area of, of resale, really. So pre-owned, pre-owned fashion, particularly. And you put yourself into that sort of echo chamber, if you like, and they're the things that you hear. You hear it resounding over and over again. So I started then self-teaching myself, like learning a lot of the information that's out there and, and became increasingly horrified at the impact that the fashion industry has on the population, on the planet. For me, it's it's predominantly environmental, but that's where my essence lies. But there is huge socioeconomic impacts as well. You know, if we look at the kind of the environmental impacts aside, alone, uh, 150 billion items of clothing are made every single year. Now, there's only 7.5 billion people on the planet. I can't imagine that. that, That's like 23 new pieces per person on the planet per year, which is fine if you think, okay, as an average person, I may go out and I'll I'll go and get a new jumper and I'll go and get a new shirt and I'll go and get new. So that's two pieces per month and you sort of break it down like that. But actually, we don't need that that amount at all. And that concentration is not... It's yeah. not all over. It, it's not. The, that's the not everyone right? gets yeah. those twenty-three pieces. This is very much weighted um, mm-hmm. to that to that top ten percent. But to follow on from that, one hundred and fifty billion items end up in landfill every single year. So we're throwing away as many pieces are being made 
Every single year, we've got one for one. Now, that is a huge... I mean, our landfills are full anyway, and you you start chucking textile waste in there. A lot of fast fashion is made from plastic, so it's made from polyester, it's made from viscose. So you chuck plastics there, it, it's throwaway uh, plastic. What happens? Like, do, uh, recycle, well, it, burn no, it? No, no, there's, there's something like maybe only 7% of textile is ever recycled. So it's 93% that just goes to landfill, just gets thrown away and, you know, spends thousands of years slowly, slowly, slowly breaking down, you know. So it'll be here oh, long, so they don't long after even, gone. They, they just throw it there. It's just they thrown don't away. burn it. They yeah, don't... yeah. I mean, obviously, some of it is incinerated, even, but, but, but it's but the proportions is just... Yeah, it, it, you incinerate plastic in the same way that you incinerate single-use, you know, throwaway plastic, and you're putting toxins into you the air. You re-contribute it, to the whole yeah. problem. Yeah. So, so there's that just huge... Yeah, exactly. So it's like huge environmental impact on the sort of the throwaway. But if you think of the impact that products have when we make them, so if, for example, and this was the example we talked about previously, is a mm. single is a single white, white cotton t-shirt. t-shirt, right? So cotton is the thirstiest man-grown um, textile plant there is harvest out there. So from start to finish, it would take up to 2,700 liters of water to make a single white cotton t-shirt, which is as much as an average person would drink in three years. Now, obviously, an average person who who have the luxury of having access to, to fresh running water. Yeah. But if you think about a white t-shirt that's sitting in your cupboard, I'm guessing you haven't worn it for three years. Nope. None of us. I mean, very, very few nope. of us actually do. So you think we're getting into this... 2,700 liters uh, it's in crazy one For one t-shirt. t-shirt. It's 30,000 litres for a pair of jeans. So let's not even, don't get me started on the denim industry. And I realise I'm sitting here in a in a denim jacket, but it is pre-owned. Okay. And it is going to get a lot of um, that wears out of it. You know, I make sure I, I wear my clothes. There's a, a movement that's going on at the moment called 30 Wears. So if you look, words. yeah. So if you ha- if you go onto Instagram or TikTok or you know I'm sure it's on Snapchat and Facebook, um, hashtag thirty words. So three zero W E A R S. It was started by Livia Firth, who's Colin Firth's wife. Um, she's very much an advocate for changing the fashion industry, and she really talks. It started off about making sure that she was wearing her red carpet looks more than thirty times. So making sure that she was getting more than thirty words out of each piece of, of clothing that she owned. So there's now a huge movement behind that. So you'll you'll find, yeah, you'll find loads of information about thirty words out there. And so that's really something that so that's an action that people can get on and do is take an audit of the, the pieces of clothing that you have, and try and make sure that you wear them thirty times. Yeah, I think uh, Tiffany Haddish is also yep. very famous for yep. wearing that white dress yep. a couple of times yep. already. And, and and that's, you know, that's really something. So this then goes on to that whole social media thing. I guess one of the benefits for my business, if you look into it, is the fact that social media has put it out there that you couldn't possibly be seen in the same outfit more than once. Oh, okay. you know? It's acceptable. So, yeah, yeah. You know, it, it's, it's making it acceptable to um, be consumed by this throwaway fashion industry, which means people will wear something. You know, maybe they go to a birthday party. Maybe they go to brunch. Maybe they go to lunch. Maybe they go, you know, whatever they're doing around town in Dubai and they wear something once, that mindset of, oh, I've worn it, I couldn't possibly mm-hmm. be seen it and again, that's really a huge impact that social media has had on, you know, on the fashion industry, on yeah. the beauty beauty industry, on, and on society as a whole. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, and it takes, you know, change makers 
celebrities, people with influence. Absolutely, to, to influence. really raise that, yeah, influence and raise that awareness. Yeah, uh, and so alongside 30 Words, there's also Red Carpet Green Dress, which is another one. And you'll, you'll see from the Oscars this year that the that was a, a huge movement. So people like uh, Jane Fonda, she wore, um, she's actually vowed never to buy any new clothes again. And she's, she oh gosh, how is 70 something? I mean, she looks incredible. And she's, she's wearing a dress that, that she wore 23 years ago and she still looks just as incredible i mean you know that's a benchmark of a of a, of a grown-up if you ever see one yeah. um but there <laughs> there are people of influence who are using the red carpet as a place to make these statements to, to turn around and say you know this is a sustainable piece of fashion we can all go out and be sustainable there's a couple of designers who have in conjunction with Red Carpet Green Dress, developed recyclable materials that they're then using for a lot of their red carpet looks. Off the top of my head, Louis Vuitton was one of them. And now my mind's gone blank as to who some of the other ones are, but so easy to find that information online. Um, You literally look for, you know, sustainability was was the theme of the Oscars Mm -hmm. red carpet this year. So it was incredible to see a lot of celebrities, incredible influence, incredible um, fame behind them, and then using that for good, which is really the the responsibility that they have. And so how can we, as individuals, help, help, or how can we take and participate in reducing our own carbon footprint on an individual level? What can we do? Yeah, what can we do? There are so many small changes. And one of the main mindsets we need to change is the fact that being more sustainable is inconvenient. It's actually not inconvenient. It's uh, far more convenient and it's far cheaper as well. I mean, we all save money when we do it. I have a reusable water bottle that I fill up from my filtered water tap at home. And therefore, I always have water with me on hand whenever I want it. So that's a convenience thing. It also, bar the initial cost of the water bottle and the initial cost of the water filter, which was like 800 dirhams next to nothing from Liquid of Life. They fit it in your home. You can take it with you if you're in a rented place and move from place to place. Bar those two outlays, my water is then free whenever I want it. So so these small changes that we can make... You take a reusable bag when you go to the grocery shop. You think about buying local food produce, which you don't then put into a plastic bag to go and get weighed. You put them into all one big bag and just get them weighed individually and put the stickers on the outside of the bag. It's really simple. Or the main inconvenience is just thinking and and creating the habit of thinking before you buy something. You know, buying buy, buying in bulk is is a great way as well. So, for example, if you're you know, buying, I don't know, like washing powder, you buy a big thing of washing powder rather than loads of small things so that you're only using one big packaging rather than lots of little packaging. Mm-hmm. There are zero waste places that you can go to now or, or, or places that have free packaged options so you take your own packaging. So places like Grandois, um, which is a supermarket, Lulu Supermarket, Co-op, U- Union Co-op, they're great places where you can go and, you know, you go from your yeah. dates and nuts to cleaning products and, you know, there's some amazing places out there. You just... The only inconvenience is, A, finding them in the first place here in in Dubai and just thinking before you buy. So that then goes into the fashion side of things is is if you are standing in a mall, standing in one of the high street brands and going, oh, I'll just buy this white cotton T-shirt. Just think, A, well, think two things. One, do I need it? And B, who made it? Like, where does that come from? And, you know, this is what we haven't even touched on is the socioeconomic impact 
of the fast fashion industry. You know, where these products actually came from in the first place and how long am I actually at sweatshops? You know, so the three main countries that produce all of our garments, uh, China, India and Bangladesh, about 76% of the workforce is women all under a living minimum wage. Mm -hmm. So they're making between 40 and 70 dirhams a month as a living wage, which is which is crazy. I mean, the example we used was how much money do we spend on coffee? Less than two dirhams a day. Exactly. It's less than two dirhams a day, which we spend more than that. You know, if you're buying a a coffee from, you know, one of the coffee shops, you know, that's two, three coffees and and you're done. So really think about the impact that, that buying has. And as consumers, we have the opportunity to vote for what we want. So choose locally produced products Mm -hmm. if you can. Choose secondhand is a big one. So part of the reason it's called reduce, reuse, recycle is, is the idea that you're supposed to reduce things first, then reuse them and then recycle them. There's now something like, you know, you can introduce like nine R's into that. So uh, refuse, reuse, repair, reduce, reuse, recycle. So there's loads of different ones that you can kind of introduce in that. And mm-hmm. and really just, just thinking is one of the key things. Just be mindful about it. Like I said, you know, shopping secondhand is a great way to do it because that product already has a carbon footprint. So by you buying it, you're actually expanding it, extending its lifespan, therefore decreasing its carbon footprint. So that's a great way that, that you can make simple and often cheaper changes in order to reduce your carbon impact. True. And on that uh, reusable water uh, bottle that you've mm-hmm. got, also massive respect to all the restaurants who are not charging water and they are offering free filtered water. water. Yeah, absolutely. Filtered, uh, One Life Kitchen. And Tom and Serge. Yeah, those. there's there's the there's a lot of them now. Twenty one grams do it. A lot of different places I do it, which is it's amazing. Incredible, yeah. It's incredible. It should be the option for everywhere. I mean, I'm English, so I often relate back to the UK. In the UK, you go into a restaurant and you order tap water, tap water. and it's yeah. tap water. I mean, look, I've been in the country for thirty years, and I've been drinking tap water for thirty years, and I haven't grown a fifth limb yet, so I figure it's fairly safe. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> But there's loads. I mean, I've I've written a couple of blogs about different options. I mean, alongside the fashion industry, the beauty industry is another one where there's, you know, if you think about your shampoo bottles, the packaging that goes into that. Okay, it's not single use in the same way that a plastic water bottle is, because maybe you get 20, 30 washes out of your your shampoo bottle. But as soon as it's done, it's then thrown away. So making a small change to like a shampoo bar, which is just like a bar of soap, but it's specifically made for, um, for your hair. A great change, yeah. you know, package free, probably doesn't have sulfites in it. So it's better for your hair. You know, there's so more many natural. benefits and more mm-hmm. natural. So they're, you know, and probably a lot cheaper as well and last you a lot longer. So once again, it's, you know, not only better for the environment, but it's better for your wallet as well. And it's better for you. You know, there's less toxins, there's less chemicals, you know, there's, there's, there's uh, hundreds of different ways that we can, everyone can make it small, small changes. We don't have to be doing zero waste perfectly. It just everyone has to be doing it imperfectly. And then suddenly the world is in a, in a vastly different state than it is now. And it starts with awareness. And it starts it? with raising awareness. Yeah. 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 That was awesome. Thanks. <laughs> how can how does uh, retold help? The world. <laughs> this, yes. How does uh, like if because I know that from attending the last session that we and everyone can participate in this with Retold. Can you tell us? Yeah, sure. How? How? 
How? <laughs> yeah, so we are a consignment, fashion consignment boutique, mm-hmm. which means we sell clothes on behalf of our clients. So, for example, if you wanted to clear out your wardrobe, you pick a few pieces, you bring them down to retold, you consign them with us. Once they're sold, you then get your um, your money, money minus a small commission to us. And as a shopper, you can come down and browse just like every other shop. We have a 3,000 square foot boutique, which has about 10,000 pieces on display. Um, Where is this, by the way? So it, we're on Umsakim Road. So just between All Star Football Center and Marina Furniture. Mm-hmm. So the best place to find us is, easiest way to find us, sorry, is Google Maps. You literally type in retold, R-E-T-O-L-D, and we pop straight up. There is free parking around the back as well, so saving you money even further. We have our primary range is ladies' fashion, but we also have a small range of men's clothes. We have children's clothes up to the age of sort of about from birth to 12 years. We've got a vintage selection. We have clothes, shoes, accessories, jewelry, hats for the races, vintage cameras. We're an, It's a an treasure trove of pre-owned. But one of the best parts is that about 25% of the products that we get in are still brand new. So they still, still have their original tag. Still have their original tag. So you can actually come down and shop for vastly cheaper than the malls and still be getting new products. So if you if people do have an issue or, or a, a cultural hurdle around buying pre-owned, that's okay because we still have because a quarter of our products still have brand new. So it's exactly the same as buying it from a mall, except for the pa- fact it costs much less. So our resale price point is is about a third of its original cost. So if it was a wow. thousand dirhams in the store originally, it would be three hundred dirhams with us. So that's huge that's savings. Deal. It's huge savings. Awesome. We're going to have all the locations, yeah, all the locations in the so sh- uh, episode uh, description. Perfect. Show notes. Yeah. yeah. So, so obviously we we're on our website. We've only got a small uh, product range on our website at the moment, but but by the end of March that will be vastly changing. So watch this space, and Perfect. that's www.shopretold.com. And we'll also you'll be able to find us on Facebook, on Instagram. And I even got down with the kids, and I've started a TikTok profile as well. Oh, congratulations. Well, thanks very much. I haven't done much with it yet because okay. I'm still learning because I'm old. But it's uh, <laughs> definitely a lesson. But on all of those places, you can find us at Shop Retold. So super simple. Congre- I, I look forward to this TikTok profile. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I have I'm no idea what's going to go off on there. I need to get get the team doing some crazy little videos and stuff. I'm a bit too camera shy to be on there too much. But Well, um, you know, there's one thing uh, that TikTok has, which is like great organic reach, apparently. And a- incredible. So you're yeah. going to get the, the awareness thing. Yeah, absolutely. On. So Alex from House of Social, I'm not sure if you know her. She is such a knowledge fountain of all of the kind of social media stuff. And she mm. was the one who's like, you've got to get on TikTok. Instagram algorithms are down. TikTok is 100% organic and it's amazing and you've got to get on it. So I was like, okie dokie, that's where that's I am. <laughs> that's awesome. And so last question as we yeah, wrap up. Shoot. What's your definition of success? Oh, wow. And what does <laughs> success mean to you? That's really interesting. I think if you'd asked me several years ago, it would be very different to what it is now. Several years ago, I was in a career which had been clearly defined from me by myself since the age of like seven. So I considered myself successful, but I wasn't necessarily truly fulfilled. Whereas 
I feel a lot more fulfilled now, whilst I definitely don't earn anywhere near enough as much as I used to. And by no stretch of the imagination is retold as big as it's going to grow yet. But I'm far more fulfilled. I Every day I get to make the world a better place. I get to educate people about how they can improve their lives and um, create a more meaningful impact on the world. And, and that, for me, means more success than getting paid thousands and thousands of dirhams just to do something that you don't necessarily truly believe. So I think success for me, the definition has definitely changed. And now it's a lot more about sort of internal fulfillment and happiness and the positive impact that I'm I'm putting out there. That's beautiful. Sean, Thanks very much. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Most welcome. And thank good you luck. very much for having me. Thanks. No worries. See you soon. Thanks for tuning in once again. And remember, if you do find value in listening to the Project E podcast, please spread the word about the show. Subscribe, rate, and review. It really, really helps get the word out. And most importantly, wash your hands, stay safe, and stay home. <laughs>